0: Welcome to a special encore presentation of Compassion Radio. Good morning, honey. It's day three of an interesting little series we started about revival we talked about Asbury and the history of revivals in America. We didn't talk a lot about world history. I mean, there are many, many things that have happened over the centuries that have led to our religious experiences here in America. And it's still going on around the world. We have people that we've met as we've traveled. we traveled. who have experienced some serious interventions by the Holy Spirit many times because they're facing persecution or tough decisions. And God seems to show up. And in His presence makes itself very clear that His approval and His love for them is intense and is unrelenting. Mm-hmm. So whatever they have to face coming up is something they can face because they have him at the center. That's been our experience in some of our recent travels. But we're going to circle back around now to some of those things we mentioned before and maybe read some accounts of people who experienced these different revivals or awakenings mm-hmm. and discuss a little bit more about what we can make of it and what we as a ministry think and what part mm-hmm. awakenings and Revivals play in the growth of the church and the missional compassionate outreach of the church. How does that kind of stuff flow out of the experiences we have with God?
1: Honey, I've really enjoyed this discussion that we've been having so far. It's brought up some things in my own heart that I can be reminded of in terms of revival in my own spirit. One of the interesting things about the whole terminology of the Great Awakening Mm -hmm. is that it is predominantly an American phenomenon, now I did a little bit of research and there have been revivals around the world. Obviously, we're not privy only to that here in the US.
0: The problem of we don't know about it because we haven't heard about it.
1: The term Great Awakening right. is is primarily focused on what happened here in the United States. And
0: when you coin the phrase, you own it. Yeah, it's true. So our historians put that context around it, and we talked in the past couple programs about the sociological and economic and legal ramifications of what came out of those revivals and awakenings. Our country is literally what it is because of the kind of people that were influenced by the word of God in profound ways that led them to make certain choices. Mm -hmm. Not always the wisest choices, perhaps. Things like prohibition, which we would say that objectively, individually is a wise thing. There are plenty of people that would have lived much better lives if they not gotten addicted to alcohol. Mm-hmm. But there was something about this zealot movement that actually introduced more problems. The law of unintended consequences, mm-hmm. even the growth of organized crime in our country. The average person living in a small town couldn't see there being anything immoral about having a beer once in a while, so they off the books were making it, or mm-hmm. they're making whiskey in different mm-hmm. places. And therefore, they were literally guilty of felonies, if not organized crime and illegal transport. They became that because we insisted too much. Yeah. That, for me, is one of the examples that we have to be careful about what we expect or desire to come out of the kind of change that comes. God has for us. I do believe that individuals who are transformed by the gospel in their generation can change the world. And there are Absolutely. so many examples, hundreds and thousands of people that attended these different events that were transformed enough that the entire trajectory of their lives changed. Yeah. Because of that, we have truly benefited.
1: Well, just want to read a couple of examples of some of the, the uh, individuals that were transformed by these awakenings. Yeah. Southern Methodist University, which is located in Dallas, Texas, in Dallas, yeah. Texas has done a mapping of the original Great Awakening.
0: Which happened in the middle of the 18th century, before mm-hmm. the Declaration of Independence, before there was even an America.
1: You're Right. Yeah. And they just brought together the names of some people that had written... Extensively themselves personally, like journals, journal entries, and some were even published that are great accounts of their personal experiences. Yep. And one such person is a gal called Phyllis Wheatley.
0: She figured in prominently into that first Great Awakening.
1: She did. She was a slave. And she was bought by a couple in Boston and taken up there as a young girl and was educated, which was kind of an amazing thing at the time, for sure. So she wasn't an average 18th century slave girl.
0: Well, she might have been, but what she was offered was not usual, for sure.
1: For sure. She took great advantage of her education and began to write when she was very young, the Wheatleys, the family that had bought her, saw great potential in her writing and that she was really a great poet. So they encouraged her to keep writing and she wrote some very famous poems from the time. Some really interesting people celebrated her Mm -hmm. and were supporters of her in her poetry and her writing. One of them was Benjamin Franklin and the other was John Hancock and they supported her. They printed her. Uh, They printed her writings. She became very prominent during that time nationally. papers
0: that were being produced in New York and Boston were pretty much the lifeblood of culture and politics in all of the colonies. Mm -hmm. All the colonies read those papers as they were passed along. Mm -hmm. And some of the papers that come out of those cities are still world leaders Mm -hmm. the New York Times or the Boston Globe. And now, of course, the Washington Post and others like that have international reach. Good reporting has a way of transforming people's worldviews. And Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock helped bankroll most of the great writing politically that led to the beginning of the United States of America. Well,
1: they wanted to make sure to publicly recognize her progressive ideas, they yep. called
0: them. Back then, it seems to me from what I've read that we have tracks like Common Sense that Thomas Paine wrote. They were specifically identified to be political philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then there was religion And faith. And Phyllis Wheatley falls directly into that realm. And because she was writing in an artistic form in poetry, it had a deep impact on those who had faith. Mm -hmm. That it just brought the emotions to life for things that they knew to be true. Mm
1: -hmm. Those that supported her and completely agreed with her and those who completely disagreed with her (laughs) brought her to light publicly. And one of those people was Thomas Jefferson.
0: He was not happy with not just her style, but the implicit messages that were hidden
1: in the poetry. Exactly, right. And he said that she jeopardized his assumption about African-Americans.
0: Now that actually could be Jefferson's way of complimenting her. Jefferson had a very backhanded kind of way of complimenting mm-hmm. people. So when he says, it's putting my ideas in danger, mm-hmm. might be that he's actually being moved by this. So I would give him a little bit of credit linguistically there. Maybe so.
1: Yeah. She triggered a lot of people. We'll she just say did. that. But that came out of the first great awakening yeah. because she was exposed to that. The Second Great Awakening, other people also had been in some ways exposed to the First Great Awakening. And one of those guys was...
0: So it's important to remember, too, that every one of these awakenings is not in and of itself its own universe. They affect each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, the longest lasting revival that we know of happened way back, which was the Moravian movement, instrumental in transforming the Wesley's hearts about their ministry as they were called to come evangelize in America. That was a hundred year long prayer meeting. It's the longest one that we know of in history. Now, in America, the first Great Awakening did not just end there. In fact, the descendants of those people transformed by the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and his crew— became pastors and leaders and influencers in their generations. And within two or three generations, we're now at the Second Great Awakening. The seeds were planted, and they've come to fruit now in a new way.
1: I suppose the most famous of the people who came out of the First Awakening and brought along the Second Awakening is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, and his name is Timothy Dwight, and he became president of Yale University.
0: Yeah, one of the premier seminaries in the country.
1: Well, when Timothy Dwight became president there, he made the comment that it was marked by a very secular way of doing things at Yale. He wanted to bring about change, and he himself kind of initiated revival there. But what happened was, even though it was initiated by him, the students really picked it up, and when they left from spring term, took it home with them, and thus it began to travel across the country. Now, out of the second great awakening came denominational shifts like we talked about before. The Baptists were born out of this The Methodists were born out of this, and also Seventh-day Adventists. So they began to spread out across the country, and the Methodists used a really cool form of evangelism called the circuit rider, Mm -hmm. the horseback pastor who Mm -hmm. went from church to church, town to town, and preached the gospel.
0: And some folks don't know that something that we have read about in American history learned from this movement, technically. It was called the Pony Express. They learned the techniques on how to keep a fleet of horses available to get people moving fast to places. And some of these pastors back during this Second Great Awakening were jumping from one horse to the next to get to the church on time.
1: So that was a big movement west. These pastors began moving out across the country through Appalachians through the Midwest, heading toward the coast.
0: Some of those settlers that moved out of Tennessee to Arkansas and to Texas, they would get to a place and they would joke before there was even a settlement, there was a Methodist church. (laughs) Right,
1: right, right. And there was a guy called Shubal Stearns as a young boy. He actually read about Jonathan Edwards and heard about the Great Awakening. And so he was very intrigued by this. As an adult, he became a pastor and decided to push this movement south. Hmm. He's responsible in some ways for taking this revival from the northeast down into the southern states, which prompted then the Great Awakening that took place before the Civil War. Abolitionists came out of that. And and of course,
0: in the south, that would have meant a bigger rift in the culture at the time and diminishing influence of those who were plantation owners who had a vested interest in perpetuating that kind of economic model. So there was a lot of turmoil that was erupting from this, but it was, in a lot of ways, a moral battle Mm -hmm. for the soul of the church. And for the people, are we going to turn to the God of the Bible and Christ? Are we going to use the Bible as a proof text for what we say goes? For the most part, those who became the political kingmakers of the South decided to side themselves with the we know better, we decide, our interpretation of Scripture is the one that needs to prevail. And they started sponsoring their own preachers to preach against Mm -hmm. this movement, which was about personal freedom Mm -hmm. in and through Christ. Yeah. Friends, before we jump back, I just want to remind you that Compassion Radio is a communications ministry, and it depends on the faithful support of you to keep bringing inspiring stories to the air each day. Our vision partners support us monthly with gifts large and small, and make it possible for us to take you to the very front lines of faith. Whether you join our vision team or make a one-time gift, thank you for believing in and standing by this ministry. Our continuing project in 2023 is to provide more Bibles through our partner, Bibles for the World. Please give generously today so that we can help send more copies of the Gospel of John for new believers, along with new Testaments and full Bibles for those growing in their faith. Many of those Bibles are needed right now in Vietnam as the door stands wide open to receive these gifts and serve the Church there. Just call us at 1-800-868-2478 to make your gift. You can also text the word COMPASSION to 53445 to give right through your phone or visit our website, CompassionRadio.com. Thank you, friends, for everything you've done and what you'll do today. We love you. For the most part, those who became the political kingmakers of the South decided to side themselves with the we know better, we decide, our interpretation of Scripture is the one that needs to prevail. And they started sponsoring their own preachers to preach against this movement, which was about personal freedom in and through Christ.
1: Yeah. Well, two of the most prominent people that came out of the Second Great Awakening that were authors were Harriet Beecher Stowe and William Lloyd Garrison. And they both wrote books and newspaper articles speaking out against slavery and how it should be stopped. So these political statements were coming from a heart of transformation.
0: Right, a worldview that had been transformed.
1: Right, right.
0: So before we move on to the later events, let's talk about maybe one or two testimonies of somebody who actually experienced those revivals. Mm
1: -hmm. There's a gal named Sarah Osborne who was just a young mother, and she experienced revival in her own heart. She journaled every day, and she kept track of the movements of God in her life. Her calling, she felt, was to share the gospel through journaling.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: She had a long view then. She did. Well, she also had some of these published at the time. She would send them out to acquaintances, have them distributed widely so that the gospel could be shared with others. And this was a result of her revived spirit from one of these revival meetings of the Great Awakening.
0: So again, one of the normal spillovers we talked about before is that there's going to be a fervor for what I've experienced being available to others, understanding that the written word is of the same material, of the Mm -hmm. same substance of what we just experienced in these meetings, in this worship, in this fellowship, and sensing the presence of God. It's all the same. It's a continuum here. So why not bring that story to others? Let them decide for themselves and pray that God would open up their hearts to experience him too.
1: Yeah. So there's
0: obviously going to be some kind of evangelical outpouring from events like this.
1: I think that there's probably a lot more than I could dig up in the time I had to search for these things.
0: In her words, what can we learn about it?
1: In the journals of Sarah Osborne, she talks a lot about being a wretched soul yeah. and just overcome with fear and distress, despair, she talks a lot about that throughout her journals.
0: And she's not talking about this being a result of the revival. No. This is the person that was leading up to it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And she was exposed enough to the teachings of the church to be aware of her depravity, basically, yeah. is what she's saying in her journals. A lot of pages of her journals just describing. How
0: horrible that was horrible
1: and tormented she was which is a very sad thing and we get deeper into the journal and she says i could utter no other language but come in lord jesus and take full possession she could hardly even express her delight in finding out that there was a way out of this depravity this feeling of dread that she had so she prays this prayer and she says there can be no other reason but this where my sins have abounded grace has much more abounded. it. Oh, amazing grace. So she comes to the point of realizing the grace of God is being poured out on her. And that's when she made this decision then to use these journals that she was writing as a means to reach others for Christ.
0: To express what it's like to live in new joy, really. Yeah. Now, I think it's important, too, to give credit where credit's due. We don't credit her conviction to somebody preaching at her saying, you are a wretched soul. She spent time with the word. She was reading it and she was finding these things, but she was obsessed with all I can see in there is how bad I am. Mm-hmm. In her own mind, we say that is the flesh, our own way of understanding things. From her perspective, going into the word, all she could see was how unworthy she was and how much she had failed not just God, but just failed, period. Mm-hmm. And then something happens because a prayer is prayed and God became present to her in those meetings that it flipped. Everything about her journal reminds me that even those who come to the Word of God seeking may still have a very difficult and trying time in their own soul, a dark night of the soul, really, when they look at the Word of God, and all I see is a dark mirror looking back at them.
1: Sarah seems to me somewhat of a mystic in these sense. She spent time really diving into her inner life and her inner relationship with God. She says in one part of her journal that, I began to see that my sins were right before me, just Mm -hmm. before my eyes. It was as if God himself were laying them out before me and telling me, Sarah, it's impossible for you to do anything about any of this. I am your hope. So she turns that corner after seeing God himself lay this out for her.
0: Yeah. Those kind of encounters I've heard a lot, even friends of mine. Mm -hmm. What I marvel at is that it feels like at the time that God is doing all this to us, Mm -hmm. that God is making us feel this way. Jesus pivots a little bit when he's talking to Pharisees about this. He says, you know, you condemn yourselves. There's enough evidence here. You're the one that's putting yourself in this place. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Yeah. And so there's something about God's nature saying, just because it's revealed to you does not mean necessarily that God is hammering it into you. Right. It is that the truth comes out, the judgments we have about ourselves bubble up. Mm -hmm. And whether or not they're truly accurate about all the things we've done or God's nature, we still feel them intensely. And God lets us feel them. Mm-hmm. And at some point, if we're desperate enough, we just turn around and say, God, what do I do about this? There's nothing I can do. And God agrees with us right. when we say that. You're right. You're yeah. not going to work your way through this thing. You're never going to get past in your own strength. Understanding yourself to be anything but worth less. Yeah. But then God right. steps in and says something very different about your worth. From that point on, it's a new
1: creation. hmm Mm -hmm. She used this opportunity to bring people into her home. As a woman, she was not really allowed to travel extensively or to preach in a public setting. So she invited people into her home and even slaves to tell them the gospel, Mm -hmm. to teach them about Christ. Another great person out of the Second Great Awakening is a man called Richard Allen. And he was a black preacher, and he's the one who formed the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, that is still very prevalent today in the black community, he was moved by the Second Great Awakening movements. He was already a believer, but his heart was stirred to bring the gospel in a culturally relevant way that the black community would receive it.
0: Because up to that point, they would have to have crossed this great white divide. Exactly. Anybody who was black at the time, if you could find a fellowship that was willing to let you come into their midst, you had to act white enough that you weren't thrown out. Mm -hmm. And that, sad to say, is just kind of the state of the culture at the time. Mm And still in many places is. So he decides to make a haven, a safe place, a city of refuge for black people to approach the word of God as directly as all the white people Mm -hmm. can. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I know that we mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe earlier. Her father, Lyman Beecher, was very influential in this process of moving the gospel south and westward. Mm -hmm. And he was part of that great movement as well. So he influenced his daughter, I'm sure, in her writings. Moving along to the Third Great Awakening, which is more relevant in our life. And
0: it seems to be kind of a fluid definition. Yeah. Historians don't agree with it all yet. Like we mentioned before, it might partly be because it's not really over yet. Right. There are waves of it happening in our generations, and we're old enough to remember what the Jesus Movement was like in the late 60s, early 70s, and how it influenced culture, not just Christian culture, which it transformed, but culture at large. Music and art suddenly were fluid between the faith communities and the pop communities. And even today, there are more gospel artists that sing and write and perform to audiences mm-hmm. mixed between those who might consider themselves faithful and those who are just liking good music. Mm-hmm. The Grammys are full of people that work in both realms. And I think it's because we're less afraid now of being, quote unquote, un with our music and realizing that God can and does infuse our entire being with his presence. And you can't hide that. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be able to be in the world so people can see that God's loving in and through you, well, you got to get out there and love him and actually share.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the Third Great Awakening was a more global experience. Yeah, it's,
0: and it still is. There are waves of it happening in many countries.
1: Wikipedia says that in the 19th century... In America and in Korea, Mm -hmm. there was an awakening that was beginning to take place. And it also was taking place in Britain. So it was kind of this global thing that was happening that weren't necessarily connected, but they were related. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that brought about a lot of change globally. The Salvation Army was born out of this. Dwight L. Moody came from this. William Booth and Catherine Booth, the founders of the Salvation Army, were instrumental in this movement as well. Charles Spurgeon came from this. Hudson Taylor began in China Inland Mission during this time. So all of this at the end of the 19th century going into the early 20th century, all of these movements were happening. And then those things really influenced our lives. Your great aunts were Mm -hmm. influenced to go to Africa as young women, missionaries, single women, because of this movement. And I just think— Wow. Yeah. That's a huge thing. That impacts us personally. Even. In fact,
0: all of my great aunts and uncles in that entire family, except for my grandfather, who stayed to be the anchor in America, they all went. There were like nine true. of them. That's true. I treasure that legacy. I don't claim it in saying that I'm somehow in the same wheelhouse as they were. I'm not even close to that. Mm-hmm. But I treasure the fact that their faith has obviously been passed down through my family to me in a way that I can claim it for myself and explore how God's going to use me in my generation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, other people that came out of the later part of that movement would be people like Billy Graham and mm-hmm. his decision to then become an evangelist yeah. from that. And then there was Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel. Those movements toward the Jesus People movement yeah. and the revolution that took place then in the 60s and, and 70s. And a movie
0: that's performing in theaters right now that tells that story called Jesus Revolution. Yeah.
1: But I wanted us to talk a little bit, too, about our own personal experiences yeah, with awakening or being part of revivals. You and I have different experiences as to what a revival looks like. Or you were kids, yeah. When sure. we were kids I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition And a revival was something that was planned out For mm. months in advance It's on the calendar Something that we really looked forward to Because it meant we were at church every night For a week at a time And it meant
0: a lot of food it it meant meant a lot of food
1: music. We were, Yeah, we were just together with people that we cared about there would be an out-of-town evangelist that would come in, yeah. and sometimes they would stay in our home. I remember that well because my dad was part of the music ministry team at my church, and my mom as well. There would be a special musical guest that would be there for mm-hmm. the week. That was always fun. So it was more of a planned meeting that we would have
0: and these are the roots for southern gospel too yeah groups actually traveled around to be part of these revival meetings and still are really
1: i remember hearing stories my whole life growing up i remember my granddaddy talking about having a experience at a brush arbor Mm -hmm. service in seago texas which is outside of waco he was a young boy and was not a believer at the Mm -hmm. time his family was not a spiritual family in that sense they didn't go to church and this was back in the early, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. He met the Lord at a brush arbor and was on fire mm-hmm. for Jesus.
0: He told me a story about late in his life.
1: There was a big reunion in Segoe. I don't know if it was like an anniversary of the church, 100 years or whatever. But we went to it because my granddaddy wanted to go. And he, at this point, was about 90 years old. Mm-hmm walking with a walker, but always had a great smile on his face. And so we went with he and my grandmother to this service. They had rebuilt the brush arbor and he wanted to walk out there through it. So we walked across this field to this brush arbor and he walked around and he was looking for something, trying to search out a spot. He finally stopped and he was looking down at the ground. And when he looked up at us, tears were streaming down his face. And he said, this is it. This is the spot where I met Jesus. And I knew it was. You could just see that he had come home to a place that was so significant. That was well over 40 years ago. And it still impacts me, that moment that he knew that he belonged to Jesus.
0: Well, there's no way we're going to get through this conversation, even in three sittings. So we'll pick it up next week as we finish talking about how revival has come to our family and ministry and all the five ministries we've had the privilege of serving with around the world. I hope you'll tune in then.
1: I belong
0: to Jesus, the cross that once was mine, became the curse that he would bear and give to me new life. I am his forever, forever he is mine, my freedom of bar- Our continuing project in 2023 is to provide more Bibles through our partner, Bibles for the World. Please give generously today so that we can help send more copies of the Gospel of John for new believers, along with new testaments and full Bibles for those growing in their faith. Many of those Bibles are needed right now in Vietnam as the door stands wide open to receive these gifts and serve the church there. Call 1-800-868-2478. And note our new mailing address, which is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. And, of course, jump in anytime at CompassionRadio.com. We need you, friends, so drop us a line today.